I'm Kristen Rawls. And I'm Jeff Eaton. This is Christian Rightcast. It's a podcast where we explain and contextualize um, the beliefs and the history of the Christian religion, the, the Christian right in America, um, both to better understand what, it, what uh, the beliefs of the group are and how it engages with the culture and to recognize its influence on the culture and where, where its actions are coming from, not just what it's doing. Um, Mm -hmm. we've covered a lot of ground over the past, uh, like 14 episodes, uh, or 13 episodes. And, uh, what are are we coming back to this time, Kristen? All right. So, uh, when we talk about these different movements and, uh, ideas and evangelicalism, we like to kind of, uh, cover some of the pop culture produced by that movement. So we're going back to our um, uh, episodes 11 and 12, if you have not listened to them yet, on uh, Christian Reconstructionism. They are a pretty thorough introduction to what is um, uh, a pretty um, extreme and and fringe movement within uh, Christian evangelicalism but is is very influential on the American far right. Uh, in episode 12, we, we trace its uh, lineage in um, a lot of the uh, neo-Confederate uh, movements up to contemporary racist organizing. So um, it, it, is, it is a movement that's on the fringe, and I'll say just briefly, um, it takes its... Um, it's uh, it's theology from a, a thinker from the 20th century called uh, Rusus John Rushduni, uh, the son of Armenian immigrants, and his he was a Calvinist fundamentalist, anti-communist, of course, whose uh, big project was to uh, reconstruct was that the the task of Christians was to reconstruct all of society, culture, government, politics, everything according to biblical law. And um, and for those of and for the listeners who've been following along with like some of the rapture and apocalypse themed episodes and remember that stuff, it's it's interesting to note that like Rushduni's talk about like the Christian task of remaking the world's culture essentially is in real contrast to that our job is to sort of sit and wait for the end times approach that other branches of of fundamentalism um, sort of steered into. So this is one of those examples where there are very different strains inside of the broader like Christian right. Right. So these people do not believe in a rapture. They're, they're called, um, uh, post-millennial dispensationalists, and they um, believe that once all of the world is kind of, they would say peacefully <laughs> uh, converted to Christianity, to Reformed Christianity, Calvinist, fundamental, you know, Christianity as they see it. Um, Real then, then Jesus will return, but it won't be, yeah. there will not be a rapture. They don't believe in this, like, uh, the giant, like cataclysm and, you know, the, 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 the way that like many of the, like, you know, Hal Lindsey style quote rapture literalists would 
talk about the end times is just mm -hmm. off the radar for for reconstructionists mm -hmm. but uh they have some pretty out there views they have um oh, yeah. they have advocated bringing back uh what they've called biblical stoning for crimes such as homosexuality and childhood disobedience and, and crazy stuff like that we um we unpack all of their the 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 thinking behind all that in episodes 11 and 12 and um one figure that we touch on is kind of central to our episode today uh it's douglas wilson who is a he is he's the pastor of christ church in moscow idaho which is a fundamentalist calvinist reconstructionist uh congregation that is as close to like a mega church as you get in reconstructionist circles like it's got at least a thousand members or something yeah that, that, um, that, that's pretty enormous and like we've talked about like mm -hmm. reconstructionism being an influential philosophy but like it's it's influential like you know the you know weird art bands of the 80s were influential not because they sold yeah. a million records but well, because and, <laughs> and because like the yeah or because they started the christian homeschooling movement right. they, they are the intellectual uh basis for a lot of the political projects of the christian right today uh although most don't like to admit that um or, or may not even be aware of the lineage of it like right you know we talked about like reconstructionists and like fundamentalist rapture folks being right. you know theologically on different sides of the camp but like i know i grew up in uh you know community and you know church culture that assumed that you know the rapture was going to happen mm -hmm. but also was deeply deeply influenced by what i eventually realized was reconstructionist philosophy via like right. the schooling movement and the political exactly. activism so again it's one of those like crossover scenarios where the leading thinkers in a camp might be ideologically opposed to each other but there's lots of lots of blurring in like in the trenches so to speak yeah, so Doug Wilson is uh, is important for a number of reasons. He has been a big leader in the Christian schools movement and the homeschooling movement. Uh, he started uh, a Christian school through Christ Church called Logos Christian School. I, I think he pronounces it logos or something weird but logos christian school um and he's got uh he helped start new saint andrews college which is a classical uh christian education college kind of like patrick henry college um in in virginia um and a lot of homeschoolers and classically educated you know christian school folks go there and, and for folks um, who haven't like caught some of the some of the past stuff like about like what quote classically educated means like right that, that's sort of like a, a, a reconstructionist euphemism like mm -hmm. it's you know if there's anybody who would get really really angry about the satanic influence of new math like this feels like the right crowd like they're yeah. very very keen on the idea that like reading the classics and practicing your penmanship and you know going through the old good stuff like folks in the early 1900s did mm -hmm. is like 
the way that you properly educate someone like uh, the- and, and i would say it is a better education than like what bill gothard is doing with atia yes. like i would like it is useful to read the classics they do yeah. stop at the classics and they don't read anybody modern really and, um, and one of the reasons or- that they want that is because many of the perspectives that were elevated in the classics mm-hmm. and that weren't rep- the ones that are missing from the classics for all kinds of structural and societal reasons they are eager to have those things not be a part of what that's right taught. right whereas mm-hmm. bill gothard like bill gothard style stuff is just like weird I have, like, what if I the have... whole curriculum was just bill gothard talking about stuff I've talked to people who were educated in a system like this or who went to one of these colleges and I'll say, so did you read any black people in your school, like black authors? And they'll say, yeah, we did Frederick Douglass, but that's it. You know, there was Frederick Douglass and then a bunch of white guys saying slavery, slavery was actually cool. Right. So, so that, <laughs> yeah. So and that's kind of where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is okay. In addition to being uh, like a big uh, church leader and leader in, in this classical Christian education, he is known for this essay he wrote uh, called Southern Slavery as it was, which uh, deals in really uh, offensive revisionism around Southern slavery suggests that it was not really that bad um, and draws on, it draws directly on the thinking of uh, R.L. Dabney, who was a, uh, a Confederate, um, a, 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 like a, a Confederate, a Presbyterian of, pastor in, in the, of the Confederacy, who was the personal chaplain to Stonewall Jackson, and who wrote about slavery in ways that romanticized and justified it. Um, and, that, and that this was a, a take on slavery that uh, R.J. Rushduni took up. It's why it's so easy for white nationalists to use his work today. And Doug Wilson, who insists that he thinks racism is wrong, um, defends, defends the history of Southern slavery. He, he argues that it brought uh, black and white people closer and into more affectionate relationships with each other than has ever existed in the past, which is really offensive and disgusting when you know anything about the history of the rape of enslaved people. And I mean, so, so this is, so, so this is one of the main things that he's known for is, is being an extremist who has um, defended the South and, and, and whose the role work, of slavery, this, yeah, and, and whose work significantly contributed to popularizing and like broadening the appeal of Confederates who wrote ex, like apologia for slavery. Full stop. Like he, he, yeah, that, that, that's one of his significant contributions to like American discourse. Right, right. So sorry, yeah. I, I just got head up there for a second. Yeah, I was going to um to to read a passage. It's just disgusting. I kind of went over what I wanted to say about it. I and we do talk about this essay in episode twelve uh, and at, more at length about the the role of this kind of thinking in the neo Confederate movements in the United States now. So um yeah so so he. 
that's who he is. He he is an extremist. Um, and he and what we talk we're going to talk about in this episode really is he's um he's engaged in this project to and he he's doing this through his educational you know movement he, and and he's also engaged in this project to remake culture and and um basically like walking out like what. Rush Dooney in his writings said Christians ought to do. Like Doug Wilson is like, mm -hmm. okay, let's do that. Let's like yeah, start schools and write essays and, you know, make popular culture ephemera and do stuff to shift culture. Even if culture, it's just, yeah. even if it's just initially incrementally expanding the group of true believers mm -hmm. who will do this. Right. Yeah. Um, and so oh, there was something else. Oh, I, we should say he's, he is considered an extremist, but he's got, uh, more popular, uh, Christian conservatives who have vouched for him. Uh, he, he has worked with, uh, John Piper, the author of Desiring God, and he has, they, they are friends. They go on each other's podcasts. Now, John Piper is seen as kind of a Christian conservative, but as more of a mainstream one. Yeah, he, he's very conservative, um, but he's like conservative like your uncle, not like, you know, that, that, that's his perception, at least. That is how he's viewed. He's actually yeah. really influenced by oh, yeah. this, and, this and kind actually of far-right uh, In the book, yeah. uh, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, John Piper yeah. makes some appearances uh, mm -hmm. it, when, like, the history of conservative Christian, like, backlash against changing, like, gender roles, mm -hmm. like, really entrenched, like, John Piper was a part of that, the, the crowd pushing that, uh, pushing that backlash. But and, anyway, yeah, yeah, so that's one of the sort of popular iterations of Reconstructionist thinking, but I would say also, and we're not, we will, I'm sure, get into this in more detail at a later date, but uh, Mark Driscoll and the entire Acts 29 movement was based in this far right-wing Calvinist ideology that Rastuni sort of brought to evangelical Christianity. Um, it's done for the masses. It's less, um, uh, there's, there's less, like fewer overt, uh, defenses of slavery probably but, <laughs> a, but a little um, less slavery little less wasn't slavery. so bad yeah and and i mean rush Dooney said that the wife was the husband's property i doubt that driscoll said that in so many words but to be um, fair there's a lot of folks who have <laughs> been like either in driscoll's congregation or in relationships that were directly harmed by his teaching yeah. and his writing who have said that like while he may have never said that a wife was directly a husband's property driscoll was a huge advocate of essentially th the idea that anything that a wife could possibly do that displeased a husband mm -hmm. or didn't immediately satisfy his desires on in any regard right. from like uh -huh. sex acts to how she cut her hair was mm -hmm. sin was a fundamental wow. sin and you yeah. know it was it, it it's so like driscoll is a piece of work and oh yeah yeah it, and even if um 
even who's, if I, like he isn't directly a reconstructionist yeah. like he's, he's a calvinist who's work right. who is who is certainly like i would say that john piper is more of a, a clearly a reconstructionist but this strain of of right-wing calvinism comes mm-hmm. directly from reconstructionism it doesn't really exist apart from them really yeah, yeah. um yeah so um all right. You, so, you can't mention Mark Driscoll and, and me not just go off on a tangent. No, so I'm sorry. No, you, you probably don't. <laughs> it's, it's like pulling the string on one of those like kids toys. It's just, I'm going to talk about like farm animals for a few seconds. It's just, that's how it works. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about uh, we're going to mainly focus on one episode of uh, Doug Wilson's it's kind of like a talk show slash podcast. I mean, there's no reason it has to be audio, audio visual. You could just listen to it. Um, He's got a YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so he's, it's called man rampant. Do you have any, is that some kind of Bible verse? I don't know. I, you know, I'm not quite sure what it's a reference to, (laughs) but it strikes me as just like my, my first thought was it's one of any number of, roughly formless references to dudes being extreme in some fashion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he starts it by, um, he comes to a table wearing a blazer and jeans and he pours some whiskey for himself and his guests. There's some strong branding going on. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, um, so so it's a show that he produces through his Christian Reconstructionist publishing house. There's a lot of money in all of this. The, the, it's it, it's important to be clear. Just as YouTube <laughs> channels go, the production values are very, very good. Like right, it's, right. It's a well-produced um it's a very well-produced um show. It's like the quality is good. Um as someone who has tried to mic video and record stuff and failed miserably uh, doing it on the cheap, like uh-huh. I can tell you, like people who know what they're doing are doing this. And right. Doug Wilson is a practiced, effective, um, congenial speaker. Yeah. And, and yeah, very effective propagandist, I would say. Um and so um, this is called this. It's produced through so, what it's called Canon Press, which is the publishing wing of Christchurch. Um, and that, that that he produced his magazine Credenda Agenda, I think, through Canon Press. Uh, that shut down in 2013, and um, yeah, and and he produces films and also publishes writing through this this uh, publishing house. So, um, yeah, so it is, it is, um, he, he's a, he's a pretty impressive speaker. I would say he, um, he comes across as well-educated, uh, and this episode, the first episode is called the sin of empathy. (laughs) (laughs) I can't, I I can't, it it just, okay, sorry. Good. Go on. Right. Sometimes, like, sometimes somebody, like, they wear the blazer, 
they do the good production. Yeah. They like they're 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 really putting on the hey, I'm no more threatening than your uncle, just having a whiskey. And they sit down and let's it, chat for a while. And then they're like, also, yeah. empathy is a sin before God. And he's like, and he's you know, he's speaking in a calm and seemingly rational tone of voice. See, yeah. Um, right. So <laughs> um so in this episode, he's got Another, like, a Christian Reconstructionist uh, theologian named Joe Rigney, who is the president and associate professor of theology and literature at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Uh, He's written books with titles like Live Like a Narnian, Christian Discipleship, and Lewis's Chronicles. I I have no hooves. I I can't. (laughs) I and his his most recent book is called More Than a Battle: How to Experience Victim uh, Victory, Freedom, and Healing from Lust. That came out this year. It may not have come out this year. Maybe which feels like it would fit really well yeah. in, in our previous episode about purity culture and like yeah. the, the pathologizing of of human sexuality. But that's that's last episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's the pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, and he has worked uh, for Desiring God. That is the ministry of uh, of the, the guy we talked about, John Piper, where Piper has worked with a lot of, with, with both Doug, Douglas Wilson and a, a few of his children. Um, so it's a, t- it's a tight Moss. little group. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, so um, so he he's uh he's kind of like a Doug's a Douglas. We're, I'm calling him Doug because we're gonna talk about his son later in this episode. So I don't want to call him Wilson anyway. Doug here, he's um, he's kind of he comes across as somebody who's like trolling a little bit, but he's trying to to do it all in good fun and he's like i want he kind of he really we'll talk about this more later but he's got this very like intellectual dark web kind of vibe like he's going for like i i may not fully believe this believe this but you know i'm just gonna put it out there for clicks but as a public intellectual Mm -hmm. yeah we would be be remiss if we didn't engage with this thought-provoking idea yeah so he's like i wanted to see what i could do to get you in trouble what better way to get in trouble than to question the validity or value of empathy who could be against it and and Rigney's like, well, Paul, obviously, but definitely me. <laughs> it's al- always worry, always worry when like somebody asks like a thought provoking, who could possibly be against puppies? And like one person in the back of the room raises their hands like, me, me, kill the stupid puppy. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, don't be the person who jumps up and says, me, I hate empathy. Yeah. Like, Come on, Joe. Okay, sorry. Go. All right. Go so, ahead. um, <laughs> so they don't really. They just. They really. They're trying to dist- to draw a distinction between sympathy, which they both say is biblical, um, and empathy, which they claim is a twentieth uh, century term that is. It sounds for them kind of like, like uh, psychological codependency, like like getting lost in somebody else's pain so you get dragged down with them and and um 
and, and uh, stuff. And so one thing I wanted to point out here is, um, is uh, that that uh, he, they they say sympathy? On the other hand, is just compassion. You don't let yourself um, you, you don't let yourself get dragged down. But it's also Wilson points out uh, it's it's hierarchical, and that's why you know the the um, the secularists have a problem with it. Sympathy is hierarchical. oh because sympathy implies that mm-hmm. like I am not experiencing this thing, but I'm sympathetic to you. To you, the lower are. being who is suffering, yeah. Which feels like a really weird vibe to bring to the concept of sympathy, but okay. Okay. I mean, I feel like that's a stereotype of uh, like that's the what we don't want when but but when when we're talking about sympathizing with someone but um but but okay but so this kind of hierarchy is biblical um for them uh and and i wilson's always the one who wants to point out you know well it's it's obviously hierarchical i mean how could it not be because you're pulling somebody out of their pain uh, it, but it's help. It's helpful to them, but it can come across as judging because you're not letting your feelings. You know, you're you're being this kind of disinterested. So, well, one of the uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about like this, you know, against empathy episode or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, like on one level, it's a kind of. It's a style of engagement with ideas that isn't as common inside of the Christian right. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you know, you you talked about this too. Like mm-hmm. the 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 mode and tenor of the conversation is chatty. It's not um mm-hmm. This isn't like a polemic by a, you know, an Fred angry Phelps. creature. No. It, it, yeah, it's it's it feels like two scholarly people getting together and talking over the nuances of an idea they think is interesting or important. And, and there are times when he rolls his eyes at like the red state Christian like like he's like thinks that he's intellectually superior to them. Um, right. Yeah. Like he, and embarrassed by them. Like, Oh, how, 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 how embarrassing that. Yeah. There's these people who like would, you know, cheer for Donald Trump and, you know, shake their fists and be angry when I, uh, an intellectual have very, very good reasons for wanting to keep all non-white people out of the country. Yeah. <laughs> Um, or, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he's, he tries to couch everything in very, uh, rationalist, uh, terms and in a very, using this very calm demeanor, but he repeatedly brings up this, you know, belief that like, well, people who say they were raped or molested could be lying. Yes. And the, we like, have to it's get always to the bottom the go- of it. It's, so the first, like, for example, that's brought up in this, in this episode, as they're talking to each other, is like this idea of like, uh, a friend or a, or, or, a you know, a spouse or something like that 
having some conflict with a friend of theirs or you mm-hmm. know it's like oh there's you know some 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 terrible thing this friend of theirs has done and the the empathetic response is apparently that you know you would say oh yes of course that's terrible the what empathetic you? response you know, like is that. but like and believe victims right yes says. and but and that's but, dangerous to him yeah because then he contrasts this with like a, like a weird sort of like Holmesian, well, we must first get to the root of what happened by considering the evidence, evidence. before we can. And like, right. And he repeatedly <sighs> says, I don't know if someone comes to me and tells me the story, whether they're the victim or the perpetrator. Like, I don't know if they are like, maybe they're lying about this person. Maybe they're the the, the person they're accusing is just an innocent victim and and, and they're the victim in the story. So I have to be able to judge uh, and, and use my discernment and be, you know, and he makes it sound very reasonable, but that is his, his go-to like at least three times in this episode. It's, it's one of those things that sort of makes you wonder like how much of this is, how much of a person's worldview is basically built around trying to backfill an intellectual framework that allows them to ignore certain people. Yeah. Like you you start from here is something that is very inconvenient for me and like work your way back Mm -hmm. to an intellectual framework that allows you to like pretend it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And even aside from all of the sort of fancy footwork that, that goes on in this episode, I think one of the things that's interesting is that this question of empathy and whether it means that you must believe in the factual accuracy of every statement made by any person who speaks to you in in like claims to be a victim mm-hmm. that is not an unaddressed and ungrappled with question yeah it, like in both in our culture and even amongst groups that advocate for victims and right. for you know believing people who claim they have been hurt like even amongst people who are strong advocates for that like this mm-hmm. is not an ungrappled with question and no. even no. the calls for things like you know in the in the me too movement you know this this concept of believe women the mm-hmm. the undercurrent in in those has always been about <sighs> counteracting the underlying contempt for the claims of people who had mm-hmm. been hurt by those who were who were afforded protection and privilege in right. society the the believe them was never a call to reject questions of fact or truth mm-hmm. but to flip the question of who is regarded as worth hearing and who is regarded as worth even listening to it it's you know this this is something we're not gonna we're not gonna unpack on you know in 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 like our our five minute side on this episode but like Mm -hmm. it's it's really troubling because this is something that exists this isn't like a, a you know doug wilson special like this is this is a kind of angle of attack on the concept of mm-hmm. um, 
engaging compassionately with people who have been hurt or or even just claim to have been hurt like yeah. th- th- there's an attack on that and where the, the where so many of these people always end up arriving is always th- remaining comfortable in disregard in their disregard for victims right yeah like that's always the terminal place they return to as a kind of comfortable Mm -hmm. resting point and all of this framework for all of the work that goes into making it reasonable Mm -hmm. it's it always has such a profoundly boring end state and that is it's totally okay to just to to disregard someone you know claiming they were abused yeah and and it's interesting to see the way that his worldview is kind of plays out throughout the episode i mean it it comes out in these very gendered ways like like several times he mentions that a a girl who he views he views the victim like any victim of sexual assault he he sees as as a as necessarily a girl but he he repeated so women and girls you know they might perceive that something wrong has been done to them but it wasn't really wrong and so yeah. the, so yeah so he and- says that husbands should never apologize to their wives unless they really did something wrong and because and, and you can't really trust women to know if, if some if they were wronged because they you know they're sensitive right that's well, kind of what he's and this ties in with another theme in the yeah. episode mm-hmm. in which he always complains about like the therapeutic culture like yeah the, the culture of therapy by, and, right by which he he means like secular um i yes. think that he i think that his understanding of um therapy is like a 1960s psychoanalysis i don't think he yeah. has much I don't think he knows what it looks like in the United States. Today. I'm sure he's watched some Frasier. Yeah. <laughs> like, but like, it, it, like, so then I think the, the interesting is that, it, you know, that this, so um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I have my own problems with, um, but is the, it is the, like the most popular uh, modality of of, uh, of of therapeutic treatment in the United States, more or less, and and it is all about retraining the thoughts and kind of getting you to to question your perceptions. About. And, and like so, fundamentally, like it, its focus is on like so you know like you can't control your environment but you can control how you perceive it and how you react to right. it so when x happens how do you reframe what's happening to you how do you look at it in a different way that helps you more and like i ha- i don't see that that as a particularly helpful way of dealing with any serious problems but um <laughs> but it is exactly what he's kind of getting at and saying that it's is totally absent in in um in secular therapy today with i mean yeah i one of the things that i put in my in all caps in my notes was this is exactly what counselors do do yeah like he said um that like one of the things they brought up was a woman of course saying um 
so that somebody in another uh, relationship, like a friendship or something, slighted her, and like, so did they really mean to slight you, or was maybe could it have possibly been a misunderstanding? Well, cognitive behavioral therapists say that kind of thing all the time. I mean, that's really what I, you know. So, and and, and I will say, <sighs> like, f- from my own experience in yeah. therapy. I have especially, you know, especially coming from a background Mm -hmm. of religious fundamentalism where the first and foremost question was always to like identify the objective truth, you know, the the objective Mm -hmm. and unassailable truth of, of, of a, of a moment or an event and then sort of, you know, if you are on the right side of that, declare victory and extract concessions. And if you are on the wrong side of it, then, well, you must subject yourself to the truth. Like everything took that shape. And I think there are techniques that I have since found found are essentially like, you know, you know, from the cognitive behavioral therapy toolbox that I've found very helpful because they, they helped me get to a place where I could focus on what was going on with me. I see. That makes sense. Rather than just saying, okay, I have to figure out what occurred and turn that into some sort of like mm-hmm. epistemological battle. Like, yeah, I'm not saying it's not helpful to anyone. Right, I would right. say for but, me, as a woman, I'm I'm already used to having all of my perceptions down. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it, <laughs> so, but like the flip side of it yeah. is, it's a gaslighting toolkit too. It definitely like is. Yeah. And, so, and and you can see the same kind of stuff that's been applied to every uh-huh. every di- every instance of dialogue on on race and discrimination and and structural racism in our country yeah, too absolutely. like the, well did they really mean this to be a problem are you sure they were trying to be racist like you know yeah. i mean and so so okay, yeah i have experienced it as very yeah. accusatory myself no I, I i can definitely understand um, like it, it being a double edged sword in, in that sense like right it, it's those same tools that can allow somebody to step back from, okay, what actually happened and just say, okay, what's going on with me? How do I deal with that? Can also be used to essentially invalidate someone's factual claim of, look, this happened. I saw this. (laughs) Which is what they're doing. Right. Just like a lot of Americans. And I've read that um, the cognitive behavioral therapy, well, okay, I want to shout out a, a podcast I've been listening to called It's Not Just in Your Head, which is kind of like an anti-capitalist um, critique by two therapists of the way that we do therapy in the United States. So, uh, oh. so cognitive behavioral therapy is so popular in the United States because it can be done in short sessions that don't require a lengthy um, like relationship building process with a therapist and that, uh, that it's, it's easy to get uh, funded by insurances. Um, and, um, and one of the, so one of the, the, the things that it's doing in retraining you to like kind of coexist with everybody is to um, like is, is, 
which I, I get, which we do have to do. It's to, to be a successful, um, sort of capitalist subject. Right. And, and even if it's not inherent, in the, even if it's not inherent in this, in, in the approach, it is extremely compatible with the project of making sure everybody just gets along and keeps on yeah. cranking out widgets. Right. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, I like I, it is it is strikingly similar to the kinds of things they're saying about, well, we need to make sure that someone's perceptions are not inaccurate. We need to get to the bottom of what's really going on, whereas they say that doesn't happen in, in therapy. It, it absolutely happens in American therapy. Um, I've at the, in this podcast, I learned that uh, like. European style psychoanalysis is still popular in Europe, um, but it's it's this is the biggest modality used here. Um, so so it's just strange. And to be fair, that that would be extremely on brand for a member of the Christian right to seize on something that's popular in Europe and complain about how common it is in America. And it's it's what all secular therapy (laughs) is. All, yeah. Which ties in with another theme that's (laughs) deeply, deeply frustrating, Mm -hmm. which is the, the stigmatization of, of therapy and of like any kind of, any kind of effort to grapple with (laughs) mental health. (laughs) Like the, that's, that's so common in the Christian church. Like, right. I, I mean, at least, at least in the portions of it that I have been a part of, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it, it's heartbreakingly common. And yeah. one of the significant themes is that if you are right with God, mm-hmm. and if you are in right relationship with God, you wouldn't have problems that would require going to a therapist or yeah, what you should I, do is go to your pastor and talk about this and i have to say i have i know people who have nearly died because they they yeah. believed this um and uh and it's really sad and unfortunate so yeah it, it is it is just you're right it's it stigmatizes therapy uh it he, he, he Wilson says there's a distinction between counsel and counseling. He says that in counsel, I would tell well, people what is what, a verb and what is a noun. Yes, well, <laughs> well, he says he would give giving people in in he would when he's giving someone biblical counseling, he will tell them what the Bible says to do, and then they have to go do it. But counseling is more for them this soft kind of dealing with your feeling you know what i mean um and, like <sighs> i just say i'm, I'm, yeah. I'm rubbing my eyes here I'm, I'm rubbing my temples it's yeah um i i feel like you know the it, there's so many b- details that are easy to harp on but like this overall theme is like I think, you know, in, in our sort of pre-roll conversation, uh-huh. uh, one of the comments I made was like, I, I don't know whether it's just profound ignorance or like sleight of hand that he's engaging in here. Like there's so much 
just like e- even using a term like empathy in mm-hmm. this very specific way when he refers to other people advocating for it and then stepping back and using it in this profoundly expansive way to describe almost any kind of um emotionally soft reaction mm-hmm. to a sympathetic figure yeah and then picking that apart from this sort of like ah but we must find out the truth sense and he's like he jumps back and forth between that like broad expansive definition of the word and this narrow definition when he mm-hmm. wants to pin somebody down using actually using the term and it's like i i you know whether that's just lazy argumentation mm-hmm. or deliberate manipulation i don't know but it's i think it's really pretty frustrating tra- I, I would say it's pretty transparent manipulation i mean he's a pretty smart guy uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and fair, fair, but like, and he, he he comes across as someone who knows what he's doing to me. That's true, and I think that 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 quality of um sort of intellectual play mm-hmm. in the in his conversations on this YouTube show, I think mm-hmm. really come through this atmosphere of like sort of collegiate conversation about thought provoking ideas, the, you know, in, is, in which he really lays out pretty monstrous ideas. Um, uh, right. Mm-hmm. And I think like in, again, you know, we've talked about like the, the sort of overlap with the intellectual dark web scene of th- this idea that like, as long as you're cordial and, you know, and comport yourself well and you you know don't froth at the mouth or you know you something can like maybe that if you, you like can s- lay out monstrous ideas and no one is really allowed to object yeah they, if they, you're they, able to cite a couple of classical texts or in this case he's able to cite a couple of family therapists um who whose frameworks he says he's he's using um and um yeah then then it's it's fine you're you're able to and and then then of course he he can't help himself even in this episode he like veers off about how this empathy soaked culture we live in Mm -hmm. is like giving rise to all this profound malice and anger towards christians and like how because Christians don't stand for this sort of, you know, namby-pamby empathizing if they're truly biblical. Everybody hates them. Mm-hmm. And and, mm-hmm. and I think you, you were the one who called out the the quote he had about, like, the, the Civil War. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you, were you able to get that? Yeah, okay. I've, I've got that. Like, he, okay. he's, he's talking and I, oh, should, should yeah. I cue it up? <laughs> sure, yeah, we should talk about it. I'm looking at the escalation, the ramping up, the increasing hate, hatred and yeah. malice and rage yep. that is just um, gratuitously offered today. It seems to me that we have got either two, we've, there are two things that are going to happen. Either there's going to be a great reformation and revival, right. or there's going to be civil war. Yeah, so that's a, it's an interesting question about whether or not there's a... Um, you know, can can it climb back down short of the Reformation, right? right? And uh, and one of the you know 
one of the factors that that's that's there's um, a there's a great line it could here. be a famine i guess yeah, a, a famine a, might fix yeah. it Hilarious. i'm looking at the escalation <laughs> a famine you know yeah, or a famine could that you, could solve it could you hear how uncomfortable that that Rigney was getting when he <laughs> he's like, consistently in that interview he would just be like oh my god he's just done this and now i have to but he's agreeing but but he, it's like he i was, agree but i really didn't wish i weren't in the position uh, of agreeing with this yeah. <laughs> while a camera's rolling yeah um, right exactly i'm sure he would have like laughed about it privately. but like this, this is the the like what he works his way towards in most of these conversations is part and parcel of like the, the reconstructionist view, which is either we're going to reform the culture, you know, there's a reformation and then, you know, everybody converts or there's just, there's going to be a civil war. But we also need to say he was talking about black lives matter in the comments leading up to that. Good. Um, Good point. Good point. So, so he's he's taught. I mean, he's he's positioned himself as like outside of Black Lives Matter and not really having a position on it. But he has. He's also saying it's it's obviously going to lead to a civil war. Um. And um. Well, he yeah. he would know. Yeah. I I mean it. Yeah, that's it. Is really um. Yeah, he said a famine might might fix it. Um, it uh. I mean, and this this is also one of those moments where that sort of I'm willing to approach these things as intellectual play, whether it's wh- whether I'm taking a slightly different approach to some fundamentalist sacred cows or mm-hmm. saying slavery wasn't so bad. Yeah. I'm sort of, I'm willing to, you know, question anything mm-hmm. um, that, and I think you mentioned it, you know, when we were first talking about this episode that like for somebody who's grown up and, and say come of age inside of mm-hmm. fundamentalism there's actually very little of that kind of intellectual playfulness, right? What, whether it's mon- whether it's in defense of or in advancement of monstrous ideas or not, there's very little of that. Very because little. usually there's a deep obsession with like biblical proof texting as mm-hmm. where you get stuff, which doesn't leave a lot of room for, well, yeah, <laughs> taking a playful. We could just talk about this. Let's think about this. What do you mm. think? Blah, blah. You know, it, 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 that that is much much rarer um and i think it's easy to see why even as he advances pretty monstrous ideas and like defends like the honor of the institution of slavery and stuff like that why there's a real appeal to folks who are on the right or may have grown up in fundamentalism but aren't necessarily yet on the what you would call like the extreme of many of these views it's still i think clear why some of them would find this very appealing even if just because of the tone and the tenor and the the approach that he takes yeah i mean i don't know if 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 the audience could hear that in the civil war comment but um i i don't think it's as obvious there and and that's <laughs> true true that, <laughs> that one line did seem the, the more one, just sort of part and parcel the, one for, thing, uh, the thing we 
we just played. Um, but yeah, I could see how um, you could see how the, in in the rest of the episode um, that that you can really kind of see how this would appeal to people who are on the Christian right who would like a Christian right that is more that is a little bit smarter can have intellectual conversations can cite texts and use them against each other um other like things other than the bible and people who who have read things um other Just than generally, left behind people who've read things yeah well you yeah. know like other than left behind or you know what i'm saying yeah. and um so i can i can see but but it's just so in a lot of ways i think we, we've talked about this kind of mirrors the intellectual dark web i don't know if we want to go there yet or talk about the book next but well like we've, um, we've got another quote that i think oh, it feels yeah. a little more playful um right, like right, one right. of the questions on a it, it's a different um a different uh show he he was asked by a, a you know a listener about um, like magic in children's stories and how and, to engage with it. And he's talking Cause... to his son here, Indy Wilson. His name's Nathan, but he goes by Indy as a popular children's fiction author. Um, and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and like this is not an this is not a an undiscussed topic in fundamentalist circles. Like you know, people got real angry at like the Harry Potter books fundamentally because there was magic in it. Yeah. Like that was the, you know, it just didn't even need to go much farther than that. You know, that was usually the conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's a really strong thread in there, which is why this was a very interesting response. Defending Mm -hmm. magic is like defending nuclear weapons or defending (laughs) spears. Um, It's not, it's, it's who's using it to what end and what point. Um, So, if you say you weren't allowed to read any books with magic in them, well, that takes out the book of Genesis, and that takes out yeah. the Gospel of Mark, and that takes out the Gospel of Matthew. And So what is walking on water exactly? Well, you don't solve the problem by saying, oh, no, that's a Bible miracle. Um, that's not magical. <laughs> that's not magical. He's just walking on water. He's just raising the dead. He, well, and yeah, so that like, was... That's interesting because the, what he's pushing back against is a very common piece of fundamentalist dogma. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, I knew people that couldn't even that you know decided they shouldn't even read the Chronicles of Narnia or uh the Lord of the Rings because there was magic in those. So so it is it is a very common dogma. Um and and he's he's uh he's pushing back against it in a in a way that sounds like it's common sense it's obvious intellectual thoughtful willing to engage yeah and he kind of does this a lot um uh should we talk about this next should we should we go on into the book yeah like i think it's it's interesting because like you know this isn't like you know is it okay to have magic in a children's book is not a it's not a purely hypothetical for him because no. he is also a children's book author. Yeah, that uh D. N. D. Wilson, his son, Nathan oh. D. Wilson. Uh so yeah, so he's the one in conversation with him here. Um and we're gonna talk about one of his first novels. It's called One Hundred Cupboards. Um a, a little bit next because it is I, I think that I think that there are some parallels between 
uh, the episode of television that we just talked about and the perspective that we got when we read this book. So um, I'll just tell the story briefly uh, as quickly as I can. It's, um, it's about a kid whose name is Henry. And he, in the beginning of the book, we learn that his... Um, his parents are missing, but he doesn't seem to really care about that. And we are uh, repeatedly told that, you know, he doesn't like, he doesn't want hit anything bad to happen to his parents, but he doesn't really care what happens to them that much. Um, and they're, they're, they're basically absent. Yeah. Just. Mm-hmm. And he's, he goes to stay, he's been living life in a big city at I missed the city, but, um, and he's moving to, he moves to Kansas to live with his uncle and his aunt and their three daughters. And he ends up uncovering this magic, uh, system of cupboards in his uncle's house. That's kind of covered over with, um, it's been like cemented or wallpapered over whatever. And, um, he finds and there are there are a hundred cupboards and he find he realizes that they all lead to different worlds. Uh, some of the worlds are evil, some are good. He, you know, we don't a so lot more of a of furniture book, based mist. Hmm, a lot of the book is taken up by building this world. It's a trilogy. We I only we only read the first one, and um, so. He gets um, his cousin Henrietta, Henry and Henrietta, and they're in the town of Henry anyway. Um, well, it's a very Henry-themed book. Yeah. Uh, so he and his cousin Henrietta, they start sort of investigating what's going on. And uh, it's there's uh, there has got to be some buildup that leads to action in the other books but so in the first one um an evil witch gets through the gets gets through one of the cupboards and comes into their house an evil witch who has a um a history with his uncle frank who also has a a history with the magic cupboards um and That that seems very sketchy I'm just going to say like, so she, and, and, and so she kind of practices what Douglas Wilson has called this like bad magic, this like pagan magic. Cause she's trying to control used to them. evil and manipulative yeah. and power hungry ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's a beautiful witch who like, when she starts to lose her magic, you can see how ugly and like an old hag she is. Um, and so they kind of, um, they want to kill the, this is actually kind of, there's some like funny dialogue in it. It's like one of the sisters is like, we just need to stab the witch in the neck. And, <laughs> and straight, was, straightforward plan. Uh, well, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I, yes. And, and they don't, they put her back into the cupboard in the evil place where she is, which is called Endor, which feels like it's probably been a fantasy locale before but it's called it's, it's the the witch of endor from uh, right. the, those who saw uh, yeah anyways yeah yes 
<laughs> what was that in? Uh, that was in, oh I, oh, I don't think that was Samuel. Uh, it's it's uh, basically who um, Saul uh, goes to, King Saul goes to, to try to consult oh with gosh! the dead spirit of uh, his former advisor uh, who's dead. And uh, the witch in the, in the biblical story, like is, you know, apparently normally like, you know, kind of a con artist and but like she go, she's terrified and she leaps back because like the spirit has actually returned and like basically tells Saul to go get stuffed but like okay. this the witch's reaction is like oh my god it's, 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 this is this, so the spirit's really coming back so fascinating that's little biblical is. story so yeah we didn't read the old testament much in my church growing anyway so so a lot, a lot of weird new, stuff that doesn't fit into a lot of fundamental uh, dogma there hmm. <laughs> So, okay, so this was okay, but yeah, it, it's it, it probably just like a uh, you know, it was interesting that the the evil witch comes from Endor. Yeah, so this was also this where the you Ewoks said this was with Saul. Yeah. Okay, why do I? Okay, what's what book is this in? You know, I'm going to be really honest. First Samuel. Judges through Kings just kind of smears together into a whole lot of killing people for me okay so i should have i really should have looked this up okay <laughs> Did, didn't expect the uh witch from endor line to be the uh to be the to be the unexpected deep dive right so anyway so yeah so that's who the witch is in this um in this world and uh and she they they uh they put her back through the the hole a hole in the wall or something and she goes back to endor and um and uh so she, yeah so um she she kind of she had she tried to control them with her mind she tried to kill the parents kill the family uh the daughter the middle daughter doesn't want to wants to stab her in the neck but the you know the oldest daughter is like that would be we can't kill somebody and so they put her back through the wall um and uh then they tell all of the uh authorities you know the police and and everyone that it was like you know it just they all ended up falling and kind of like fell on the stair they all you know sort of simultaneously got injured. walked into a cupboard there was no magic involved at all right and um and they all tell the same story and then we never we don't in this episode get insight into what happened to his uh parents who we learn are adopt adoptive parents um his real parents are from one of these other worlds and uh-huh. and he and his uncle are both from other worlds within the cupboard and um and i guess the latter the next two books are about so about you know coming to terms with what's who his real parents are what what he's really just classic to do. coming of age in a cupboard story yeah so <laughs> and like and it is interesting because like it breaks with tradition in a lot of in in loads of christian ya mm-hmm. um you know in part because this question of magic is it, it's dealt with in a much in a much less dogmatic sense a lot of right a lot of christian ya is very very invested in the idea that 
All magic so, is so, pagan. Well, like Doug Wilson will. articulated this, it's about what you use it for. But mm-hmm. the the dogma, I'd say, in a lot of Christian YA is actually that it's yeah. where the power comes from. Right. That, right. that makes it good or bad. Like, is it God is doing this thing and you're a servant of God, so you get to, you know, you know, stuff happens around you, like the biblical prophets, or is it Satan is doing stuff and you're you know, taking advantage of that. That's usually the line that's drawn. And Wilson actually has a surprisingly, um, <laughs> I don't know, utilitarian or, you know, right. like a, yeah. a take that's basically like, well, are you doing good stuff? Or are you doing bad stuff? That's, you know, right. that's, that's what the so, big question is. Yeah. And so, and, and I wouldn't want to read too much into it, but like, even the way he approaches that is it's different. Right. So his son, uh, Nathan and ND is his, his, uh, professional name um he is he does so he does he also makes that distinction between the types of magic in this book so um both um the the character henry and his uncle frank have the ability to use the magic to travel throughout the covered world system um and they are repeatedly having to go and rescue people in in that in the world so uh henrietta who does not have the ability to use the magic his cousin uh just you know she's a girl so she's flighty so she just goes off into into one of the worlds on her own without um without the ability to get back so he has to go and rescue her so so there <laughs> so this is turning into sort of a classic like boys are adventurous mm-hmm. uh ladies are either evil witches mm-hmm. or in trouble and or need rescuing trouble. kind right. of uh kind of vibe exactly um and and so right that's that's what he it and and it's repeatedly stay we should say um this is kind of like hammered in through the first several chapters that henry really likes where he's living in this kansas locale first because it's this rural like pastoral landscape where he gets to have adventures he gets to do sports and he gets to like be really good at um or not be good but he gets to get better at baseball whereas when in his city life he was like overly protected and made to wear a helmet and um and not allowed to just like in general or when playing sports um no oh yeah playing sports okay. <laughs> sorry i just the the my <laughs> mental picture of this book changed radically for no, a second there i appreciate you bringing that up <laughs> Yeah, so his parents wouldn't let him do things like uh, drink soda because they, oh, we, we get that, like, they're, ba- <laughs> they're bad cosmopolitans because they said that soda was crass and capitalistic. Um, and and so we, we get the idea, you know, they're, they're bad secularists. They're against capitalism and the the life-giving power of soda that makes the american childhood what it is you know but uh did you get to the soda part you know soda part (laughs) um and um yeah (laughs) and the the thing we find really fascinating about this book (laughs) is that it doesn't indulge in what well, most ideological Christian YA does. No, it is, doesn't. It, everything has to be shaped towards like 
the pitch for Jesus or ex- or constructing a very explicit and elaborate metaphor for Christian theology. Like, well, well we've got a system of magic, but it's literally just reskinned, like gifts of the spirit from the book of acts. Right. There, there's like no Jesus being, right. there's no Aslan story. Although this is clearly influenced by the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Going like, through walls and getting into new worlds where you, <laughs> you um, but, but yeah. Um, but like it, but where it's less constrained by those right. like, tropes of the form. It is. It's yeah. not, neutral in that a lot of like you were talking about like how much of the the fundamental worldview that wilson takes from reconstructionism and particularly like the the patriarchal aspects of it Uh the um the the weird like reversion to an idealized past um Uh fixation yeah. Like, those are all like deeply present in it. Yes, they are. Um, but it's not preachy. It's if you so this this is not marketed to Christian audiences. I think it's yeah, through, yeah. it's published through HarperCollins and um it is it is marketed for fans of Percy Jackson. Um and if I had read it without knowing I mean, the, okay, the Witch of Endor thing would have kind of stuck, like, I would have known that I, that, that rang a bell, but, um. But it could have just been because of the Ewoks, yeah, you know? I, I wasn't sure. I really, we really did not focus on the Old Testament when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, it, it was a more liberal, liber- theologically liberal, uh, church, really. Um, and so, yeah, like, I, it, you wouldn't necessarily know unless you really started thinking deeply about the kind of values that this book is um, is pushing. And it's it definitely that boys are adventurers, that girls are flighty and need to be rescued. And also that it, it does not get a lot deeper than that, which I think is interesting in light of the uh, you know, the the invective against empathy that we just talked about. Um, so there's like no emotional connection between yeah. this guy, Henry, and the, um, the, the parents who raised him. And the reason he likes the place he moves to in Kansas is not because he feels any kind of deeper connection to anybody newly in his life i mean just like he the, kinda, the possibility for adventurous boying like he has fun with his cousin henrietta but there is no deeper connection forged between him and anyone else um the, the his um his uncle frank is said to be like thoughtful and to have uh and and he kind of sets him on his path he gets him a knife because he kind of sees him carving out this like system of cupboards and finding uh, figuring out what you know who he is and what his true purpose is and stuff like that but and and like so he i mean there's there's this kind of direction that he's given for, from this new man in his life but there's no emotional well there's no love the, in it and i and, and there isn't necessarily any growth no beyond 
becoming adventurous. Becoming adventurous, yes. Getting comfortable playing baseball with friends. Um, Having, you know, going out on adventures and like... Finding like your the, destiny in the, the impl- and the implication of that isn't necessarily like there was something keeping him from this. He was afraid, or he, you know, even even mm-hmm. something as simple as that. It's well, like, there is oh, well, okay, he, so there he is. wasn't being a proper boy, and now he is, and now he is. But there is some, there is like his duty. It's like consistently. This is where some of the gender stuff comes mm-hmm. in. So in his conversations with his um his cousin Henrietta, she's like, "You act like more of a boy than I do." Like it's consistently like suggested that he's this wimpy boy and these fairy people in another of these realms call him the whimpering child so he's like he's like weak in the beginning the growth is that he's learning to be strong and brave but it's not any kind of deeper growth than that it's and there isn't necessarily any like anything happening inside of him (laughs) no drives that like that that was that was really something that I noticed too. And like, I, I mean, in that sense, right. it's like, it's very plot driven. It is not character it driven. It's not at all but like character that, driven. That, that's also not like terribly rare in, you know. In fantasy. YA yeah. And fantasy yeah. and stuff like that. So like, you know, you know, but, but, but still. I thought about it a lot as a foil to A Wrinkle in Time because it's, that's a similar yeah. story in which a parent is missing. A child is, is taken into other realms to, um, to like, to kind of save the world. Well, and this, you know, not, not just to go and, but to save humanity and to, uh, and, and in that book, Meg Murray is kind of, like that book is about self-acceptance coming into like her conf, you know, confidence in her love and loving herself as a person. Well, and, and it's also about being driven by this deep sense of like familial love and also commitment to, to friendships. Like she, her friends, her, what's her friend's name? Is it Henry? I don't know. But, um, so, so I think that, um, this kind of a this is kind of a rejection of that. It's like it's it's not well, in, about in the sense that like anything I would deeper say that like, than than just doing my you know the things that I'm supposed to do as a boy. Be brave. It's like sort of wild adventures. at heart. Yeah, as YA as as like fantasy YA, like right. Boys want to climb mountains and conquer stuff, and yeah. if they don't, boy, you know, if they're if they're not given free reign to do that conquery boy stuff, mm-hmm. they really get sad and and you know, weak and weak yes. and soft, and they whimper and um yeah, and and there's no like, and speaking of empathy, there's no empathy between the mm-hmm. you know his parents are missing and nobody in this family really shows him any empathy. Like, yeah, like even in the first, him, they give him scraps of their of their um their what is it their meatloaf that they ate like that's like that's like if that were in another child's like fantasy book that would be evidence that they were evil and abusive and were well, like like they I, gave I, him like, scraps a... from their plates of meatloaf they didn't even give him his own plate that which is kind of how 
these reconstructionists conceive of charity in the first place, which is that it should be sort of humiliating, that there's nothing wrong with that. So I did want to point that out. I don't know if you caught it, but... I didn't, you know, I didn't catch that one. Yeah, I, I think like, like, the, it's the, like, he's like, it, he says that they even gave him uh, the leftovers from their plates of meatloaf that night, and it was more meat than he had ever had in his stomach, and he felt great. So, it, isn't that strange that, that they're the good guys? In the- well, I mean, I... I think I, you know, as soon as you mentioned a wrinkle in time as a point of comparison, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, well, you know, there's very few books that are going to compare quite, you know, compare no. favorably to that. Right. But I think one of the, at a pure thematic level, this idea of a young boy is held back from adventure by overprotective parents mm-hmm. and you Abs- know, overprotective society that, absentee parents. Yeah. Or, yes, yes. Overprotective absentee parents, mm-hmm. a society that constrains him and all of the woes and, you know, internal problems that result from him not being properly adventurous. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus the, the arc of growth is just him becoming adventurous right and, and yeah there's what a- i find interesting is that the, the contrast in a wrinkle in time like nobody like meg's goal is not saving the world like right, the no, adventure no, no, no. of a wrinkle in time is the barrier between her and what she cares about like yeah. all of the adventurous stuff is the mountain to it's be climbed yeah, because someone she loves and cares for is at the top of the mountain, right? <laughs> like it, it's and the what it is that is driving it, and what it is, re, what is regarded as a worthwhile pursuit to be lauded. Uh-huh. There's a very different like philosophy of what animates. Uh-huh adventure <laughs> that's true that, that's underneath it yeah and and hers is very relational and um yeah. and i would say anti-authoritarian i mean there's the the scene with the basketballs and then the in the the city where everyone is doing exactly the same thing where yep. yeah um and this is this is definitely not that this is uh you know uh rigid gender roles in which somebody's going someone's going to be happy if they're doing the right things they don't need love or support from anyone else they just need to be able to do this they need to be in a structured environment (laughs) and to exercise their gendered role in life and then then they'll be fine they don't they yeah he like nobody ever really says anything compassionate to him about parents are missing it's like the, the, the closest it comes thing. is when someone sort of kind of gets chastised or scolded for being needlessly blunt when asking him about his mm-hmm. parents or saying they're probably dead like but, one of the one of the kids is chastised for that but like it doesn't really have any impact on him but, and it doesn't have any impact on everybody else it's just sort yeah. of like a faux pas it's you know it's but you know, even, that, that was rude yeah but even he's like he does he has no connection to these people that raised him anyway like he keeps saying like the the, the, the narrator is omniscient but sort of it says that um you know he didn't want anything bad to befall his parents he didn't want them to die but he didn't really ever want to go back to them and he yeah. he didn't particularly miss you, you know he he doesn't wish them ill but he didn't really care what happened which is all all i can say is if if my son writes a book about (laughs) 
not not giving two craps if he ever sees his parents again and going off and having adventures. That's how I know. I've really left my mark as a father. But <laughs> well, um, that's just interesting. But, you know, the idea. Of, yes, you know, yeah. if you raise someone without empathy, I, th- this is the kind of fiction you get. It's, um, <laughs> and and the kind of world building and the kind of the way that you would you know, it's all about the story and the it's not about any any deeper connection or anything than that. And I think it is interesting, like sort of circling back to the. Mm-hmm the like the foundational aspects of like the the reconstructionist project mm-hmm. that I, I don't think that like you know as as doctrinaire as reconstructionism is about like this remaking culture in you know in, into a you know yeah uh, into a what i think what we would call like a horror show theocracy mm-hmm. you know despite its insistence on that Mm-hmm. I think hundred cupboards is interesting because it, it demonstrates that like there are themes of mm-hmm. the reconstructionist worldview that come through strong, but it's not like reconstructionism is in that. No. Like the, the appeal to, you know, a bygone era and like the, the purity and idealness of like, small town rural america the and family, gender roles and the family the family and, is know. the central organizing pr- like principle right. of society as opposed to any kind of government or even yeah. community um it it plays that that plays out and uh-huh. i think what you know i haven't really thought about what conclusion to take from this but i think one of the things i've you know we said earlier when we were talking about this episode i mentioned that you know like always pay attention when like an ideologue writes fiction because right. <laughs> like they <laughs> you're, you're getting a, a look at the kind of world that they create mm-hmm. and the kind of questions that they don't think that they don't want to spend time answering yeah and i like, think it's fascinating that like it's as authoritarian and as family obsessed as uh-huh. reconstructionism is that the immediate step was okay his parents are basically out of the picture uh-huh. which is a common fantasy trope but in this context it is very very interesting i guess if you were raised without empathy and to think that empathy <laughs> was evil you know it's <laughs> it is interesting um but it, it also removes the need for the common trope of conflict with parents. Mm-hmm. Like he never is faced with the with whether or not he should lie to his parents I, or whatever. He lies to the police. I feel like um, we must find out more about the parents. And I might read the other books just so I know. This, this is how it happens. <laughs> Doing a podcast like this is how you end up becoming the national expert on bad reconstructionist YA. Like that's that this the slippery slope. This well, is where it is. It could be. So so um one thing about this is it has actually I mean it was it, it's not the worst thing I've ever read. It has been yeah. well reviewed. I mean, it, it, it's by... a well it's a well executed YA fantasy novel. Kirkus gave it a good review, a good review. Like it is, um, it is. Muggle.net gave it high praise. Uh, and, um, 
so it is he does yeah he's he's in this world where he, like he's kind of he's not as well known as the writer like any like, as jk rowling or anything but he's definitely um he's he trying to be in, in that, that fantasy yeah. children's fantasy zone yeah this is yeah, i mean this, this is this is not like bad hal Lindsay novels no kind of stuff no this is actually you know it's published by harper collins it is uh marketed to regular kid not just reconstructionist kids <laughs> just regu um, regular kids not the weird not ones the like weird Jeff homeschooler <laughs> sorry yeah. <laughs> uh and, and it's, it's some it's like yeah it, so it's just strange it's kind of like he's he's trying to do you know impart the reconstructionist values in a in a stealthier way and it, in a, in conversation with secular culture in a way it, it, it's that... like when sixpence did their single kiss me <laughs> oh but with God. magical cupboards nobody's gonna <laughs> yeah it's kind of like that um, i need to figure out if steve taylor was involved in this book in any way <laughs> Okay, sorry. Wait, who's go, Steve go Taylor? Is this from somebody from <laughs> Sixpence uh, Down Chris, the Richard? Christian musician from the 80s who from... uh, was one of like a, a new wave artist of like the 80s. It was very, did very interesting, okay. edgy Christian music for the era and then ended up going on to produce literally every Christian band under the sun okay. for like a decade. He did the Newsboys and like the Sixpence Down the Richard and everything. Oh, sorry, okay, sorry. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's for another episode. Yeah, we but yeah, should like, have some fun this like the, this stuff, crossover yeah. thing mm -hmm. like feels like a hundred cupboards, you know. It does kind of. <laughs> um, so he's and and one thing that Kristen McHugh uh, on Twitter pointed out was that you know it would have been nice to know um, before Orson Scott Card got big who he was and 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 what kind of ideology he was actually promoting um yeah so it's I, sort of like if everyone had known about orson scott card's views on uh -huh. like everything and then like say ender's game came out it'd be like huh what's this book right not like Oh no, the guy who wrote Ender's Game is an ass. Oh, yeah. My heart is broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um so Indy Wilson is interesting. He is he tries very hard not to be uh transparent about his views on Twitter, but I was just looking through it. There's a lot of like kinda kind of in the same style as his father, kind of like pseudo-intellectual making fun of fear of covid for example uh a lot of just like oh this is all he he actually wrote this is in his bio from when he taught at his dad's college uh that he he wrote two novella length um uh, satires of um of <laughs> Christian dispensationalist fiction like Left Behind, which might actually be funny. I don't know. Wait, wait a minute. I might oh. own those. <gasps> no. Just a sec. Hold on. I'm popping up my Kindle library. 
uh, are they like you, you wrote satires of two of the left behind books? Oh. I'll have to check. I, I, I'll, I, I I'll, don't know if they're, it's just that he wrote them. I didn't see who published them, okay. even if they were I, I, I'll have to check because it, but, um, it, it rang a bell. And if they got published, if, if they just, got published, I may own. I, I Well, I, I, I need to know. N, as initials N D Wilson. So, okay, yeah. yeah, it's li- listeners. The we'll we'll follow up on Twitter <laughs> with the, <laughs> the results from this, um, um, but like I I think that that theme you're pointing out, like the the sort of above it all, you know, uh-huh. the above it all detachment uh-huh. that's affected, um, it, that's present in like his father's talk about like you know his father's writing about like. Well, slavery was it really all that bad? And mm-hmm. empathy, everyone likes it, but is it really good? <laughs> We're not afraid to toy with these questions. And ND Wright is like, you know, oh, ha, ha, people are so afraid of Twitter. Why are people af- or afraid of you know COVID? Why are why right. are people afraid of things? That it's very intellectual posture, dark web, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and and it's you know we were talking about like we were talking earlier about how like thematically that that posture of like i'm we're just not afraid to toy with any idea that's out there and Uh if you get emotionally wrapped up in this stuff and you react to me Uh then that just demonstrates that you're not ready for this type of intellectual engagement which is essentially a way of saying nobody can call me on advocating monstrous things if they seem to care (laughs) <laughs> right it is it is the exact same sort of um rhetorical um kind of detachment that you see in the intellectual dark web and in, in those characters and raising the same kinds of monstrous questions um and and treating the raising of those monstrous questions as if it's a game uh-huh. as something that like they should be rewarded for because it's proof that they're above it yeah Sorry, right. that, no, that, that, I, yeah. I'm, I'm bringing my feelings about the that whole pose to this. That it's you know, it's I'm, yeah, it, no, it's a good, it's a good um, uh, transition, and it's true. I have, yeah, you, you, I've been thinking of these people as the intellectual dark. I mean, reconstructionism generally is is like this. It takes this very intellectual, like pseudo intellectual approach to like. It's obvious that the people ha- who who do it have read some books and a, like a lot more books than 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 most uh, than popular evangelicals have read. And, it, so, and in some ways, it's it's reminiscent of like the neo reactionary subgroup of like the dark web scene, where uh-huh. you know a lot of that grew out of you know a very small handful of profoundly <clears throat> like prolific um people who just spent large chunks of their life like making a case that perhaps us smart people can just you know step back from all of this namby pamby you know civilization stuff and argue about whether or not feudalism was the best system which interestingly is 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 was a perspective that uh, R.J. Ruth Juni had, yeah. uh, which they call, <laughs> all of these people were kind of influenced by the uh, economic system, uh, economic thinking of, of Ludwig von Mises at the Austrian School of Economics. Um, hardcore libertarianism, like extremist libertarianism, that kind of 
devolves into feudalism. Um, People who never met a gold bar they didn't like. <laughs> and um, so, so there, there, are, there's a lot of overlap here. There is, I suppose, like substantive, like with the, the economic uh, ideology and uh, rhetorical style overlap. Um, I, you, you call them the theological dark web, which I think is very apt. Um, that's just <laughs> such a cursed term. It's just so terrible. It's one they will pick up and use if they ever hear this. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's keep that under wraps. Then. I think it has to be in the, in the title of the episode, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we need clicks. So, <laughs> well, uh, we'll we'll see how this shapes out. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so but yeah, I, I I think it is I, I think it is interesting. You know, I like, like we're kind of we're we're kind of like coming to a close mm -hmm. with this episode. But I think it's it's been interesting because so many of our previous episodes have been sort of tracking the chronology of a movement or a person mm -hmm. and where it got to a current recognizable point. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the interesting things about this sort of dive into Doug, Doug Wilson and his son's writing mm -hmm. is that it's, it, it's a little more current and it's a little more right. um, <laughs> sort of like what is currently happening with the, the new sort of pointy, tip of the spear of, of like yeah. the 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 ex extremism in christianity in the christian right it's it doesn't mm. look like you would expect no. um because a lot of the stuff that is currently i think recognized as like existentially threatening is the fruits of stuff that was extremism in the christian right like 40 years ago right like that's what is now you know in bills in congress mm -hmm. and it's interesting because depending on what happens over the next years and decades like the stuff that flows out of these thinkers and the the cross-pollinating schools of thought they're mm -hmm. developing now i think is going to be what's I don't know. I, I think it's probably closer to the bleeding edge than just like more, um, you know, more Southern morality right. in, you know, in, in constitutional amendments kind of stuff mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people are used to expecting of fundamentalism. Yeah. Yeah. I think there will be, you know, continued dovetailing with the intellectual dark web with trends on the American far right. Um, and I think they will, con you know, this is the, you know, the intellectual wing of the Christian right. These are the people who think that they, um, they, they have the best theology, the best doctrine, um, and, and that they are above uh, um, other evangelicals who are too emotional, whose theology is based in just an emotional relationship with Christ, whereas they think that they t are taking the entire Bible and applying it yeah. to all of life. Hey, Kristen. Hey. Earlier in the episode when we said that it was real weird that uh, Doug kept going back to the example of like, what if you were 
counseling someone or you were the pastor of a church and they came to you and said they were being abused, you know, wouldn't it be terrible if you just believed them by default? Remember how we said that was such a weird, random example to keep coming back to? It seemed like an almost irrational fear of his. (laughs) And and such a strange one to use as a Mm -hmm. go-to when so many simpler ones are out there. Right. I, I... pulled a clip of that just to just to give an example just to make sure that everybody like heard the tone of it I'll, I'll, is it okay if i play that back real quick mm-hmm. yeah so um so if you take a scenario where someone is actually hurting so let's they're they're actually in pain they're actually grieving um and and they've been wronged or something like that and then now there's this expectation either from them or from other people show some empathy here you know, get get in there. With this is them. Joe Rigney um, speaking. Yeah. If yeah. you say, well, hold on a minute. I just walked up here. I want to actually think about this situation. I want to maintain some emotional distance in order to be able to evaluate, you know, who did what and when. Is, is this true? Is, is this, this true? Um, what's He's true here? Really is the perception terms. accurate that this person, if you want to maintain that dif- dif- uh, distance, that's inevitably um, alienating to them that feels there feels you like hate, clearly you're not, hate victims right you hate victims you're you're not actually loving me because i only feel loved if you endorse everything i say or if you validate everything i say and if you question so so if someone comes in with a tragic story right and you're a pastor i'm a pastor right a, a terrible story comes uh, uh-huh. into your study and someone pours out yep. you know um my brother started molesting me yeah 10 years ago right. awful things. and awful things and awful things that actually really do happen to people. Yep. Right. So the first thing you know, is that this story absolutely could be true. Right. Straight down right. the line. It could, it could actually it could be, be as bad as all of this. That's right. right. It could also be false. Right. Right. She yep. could be trying to get even or trying right. to do something or yep. it could, there could be any number of That's right. things that could motivate someone to, mm-hmm lie about a story like that so right that's a theme that comes up multiple times in the episode whenever the idea of this conflict between entering into emotional you know connection with someone and empathizing with and sharing their pain versus being an objective you know third-party seeker of truth example accusations of abuse is always his go-to it's always his go-to and um, we really wanted to um, examine the culture that this, these kinds of uh, leaders are producing almost in isolation. Um, but um, that really kind of stuck with us. And it turns out that, that uh, our, our instincts were not wrong. Um, we did a little bit of um, a little bit of background reading and found out that, um, in fact, um, there have been two pretty high profile cases in which um, two men uh, abusing minors were um, championed and protected by the church and by Doug Wilson. I'll say a little bit about them. Um, I feel like it would kind of um, 
it would make the the tone of the episode seem a little glib if I went into to a, a lot of detail. But um, I just uh, so one is is Jameen White uh, and the other is Steven Sittler. These are the perpetrators. Um, these uh, both of these uh, uh, stories kind of came to a head in 2005 and 2006. Uh, Jameen White was attending the sister church of um, Christ Church. It's called Trinity Reformed. And Sittler was a member of Christ Church. Both were... So Doug Wilson was um, his pastor at the time. He was Stephen Sittler's pastor. Right. White had a different pastor. Um, but both were... Atten- uh, White was attending the unaccredited seminary that's attached to... Um, to Christ Church and Sittler was attending um, New St. Andrews College, which is the uh, the university that the Doug Wilson started. And they were living in homes of church members, which is uh, through this boarding program that the church has. Um, and, and in both cases, uh, both men uh, sexually abused children in the homes where they were staying. Um, and both were, were pretty horrific stories. In the case of White, this went on for three years. And um, in the case of Sittler, it was reported that he abused numerous children um, and, and had, had a long history of, of abusing children. Um, so Wilson wrote letters on behalf of both men to attest to their character before the, the courts, uh, enter a caress. He disputes this, but relative leniency, uh, when, uh, White went to trial, both Wilson and the pastor of Trinity Reformed, that was White's pastor, sat on his side of the courtroom to support them. Um, and in part based on, we think, uh, what Wilson wrote on his behalf, his charges were reduced and he ended up serving only four to six months in, in prison. Uh, church leadership gave the victim the, um, in that case, the, um, the, the impression that they felt the abuse was consensual. She, she was 13 years old when it began. He was 23. Um, he continued to attend the church while his victim had to leave. Um, he has since gotten into other trouble and, and, uh, apparently been under Christchurch discipline for abusing his wife. Uh, in the case of Sittler, he served one year with some probation. And after his release, a church elder set up a courtship between him and a young woman in Christ Church. Uh, they got married after apparently going on only two dates and Wilson officiated at the wedding. Uh, Wilson has disputed the, 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 it seems really clear that this was kind of arranged by the church, but he's disputed that. And, uh, the courts advised against the marriage and especially against Sittler's plans to have children. Um, but uh, Wilson insisted that the marriage would be good for him and somehow like help him. Um, within one year of the birth of Sittler's first child, the court stepped in and removed him from the home for um, 
for for his uh, behavior with with his um, son. It's not clear whether he abused his son or engaged in um, sexual acts in the presence of his son, but uh, he's he was removed from his home, and uh, so. Um, and, and to be clear, these aren't cases where. Oh, the, this this happened the, in 2015. It was this, right. And, I mean, yeah. like oh, the the overarching theme here is that these, these aren't cases where like a pastor is just confronted with some evidenceless, you know, he said she said right. story of woe and must choose what to do. Wilson came down on the side of someone who was investigated and found guilty. In two cases and welcomed both to continue at the church for at least a decade after their abuse was was made public. And, and one of the victims was um, actually put under quote church discipline. Right for for for, an, for leaving the church and not Yeah, her sense was that she was being put under church discipline for fornication. She was a child again who was being abused by by someone 10 years younger. Yeah. So, so, um, so, um, so, so it's just, I think, important when you, you know, it's, it, these people come across as calm and rational in, in these discussions that they're having. And they, um, and they, I mean, they want you to think that they're smarter than everybody else in the room. I mean, you know, Doug Wilson is about as qualified as I am to count, like, to to know what to do with a convicted pedophile. We both have master's degrees in philosophy, so, um, like, you know, um, I mean, I think I'd have better advice, but but neither of he has no training as a pastor. His degrees are in classical studies and philosophy. Um, and he, it's just um it's just really sad that it, it's that bad and i was in the story of the marriage i was really reminded of the of josh duggar and his kind of rushed yep. marriage and of the fact that you know the his wife uh sittler's wife was made his chaperone around his child and she did not report his behavior to the courts so she was removed as his chaperone um yeah so so uh, i think uh we we really had high hopes for this episode yeah to be perhaps the one that wasn't about horrific abuse. We thought it um, was going to be a little bit lighter. It was just going to be about this book and this this TV and, episode. And and, um, I th- and I think it was also an exercise in like approaching the the material first rather than treating it solely as like a dissection of you know mm-hmm. a particular person's <laughs> yeah narrative. Um, in hindsight, I think I wish that I had known this going in. I would have. On the other um, hand, I I think it's a, a sad but useful confirmation of that and, spidey sense. And I want to say it, it is. And, and uh, Wilson has not really ever been repentant or or apologetic about his conduct and has accused everyone who has criticized him for for this for not protecting 
child sexual abuse victims of being church enemies and of, you know, of trying to, to bring the church down. I also wanted to add that Wilson's, um, his, he has always been a, a, pr- a pretty, um, far right leader and, his statements have become more and more extreme over the the most recent years. He calls himself a paleo confederate politically. Uh, his that, that seems like a really unfortunate flag to plant. He, yeah, he has long standing ties to the League of the South, and he uh, not that long ago defended, uh, Trump's statement that there were good people on both sides in Charlottesville. Uh, he, he lauded Trump for refusing to take a side between two evil groups. So he called, he called the fascists and the anti-fascists, both evil groups. And, um, and that's uh, and and so he can affect a calm and friendly demeanor, but uh, I do think it's important to keep in mind we are that um, I mean this is the same move that the the members of the intellectual dark web make when they start going, oh you know maybe there is something to racial differences with IQ maybe and then they start entertaining like uh, race you know racist debunked race science and stuff like that it's the same rhetorical move and it it, it is often hiding something monstrous and uh, scary so yeah so as we I guess as we embark on subsequent episodes just as our exploration of mid-century fundamentalism was felt like an endless quest to find a religious conservative who didn't end up being a weird anti-Semite. I guess our new quest is to find a late 20th, early 21st (laughs) century, like, like neo-fascist religious conservative who isn't also sheltering pedophiles. Yes. Our quest will continue. And, yeah, uh, this is really, uh, yeah, so um, we are, um, we're going to put a lot of more information about Wilson in the show notes because he is a crossover figure. He is, he's been published dozens of times for, with the Gospel uh, Coalition, is that the website? And he has, he's been a friend of Mark Driscoll's and he's very close to John Piper. So uh, he is kind of a mainstream crossover who is uh, a pretty scary extremist. So yeah, uh, we hope that you'll read more. It's not going to be light reading, but um, we were, we're providing a little more context for, for who this guy is. So, and, and also I want to add, I do, um, Everything point, you know, N.D. Wilson, his son, is still involved in the church, still does speaking engagements with his father, still goes on his YouTube channel, and is just cranking out content for children, which I don't love my either. Um, you know, um, he's got a show on Netflix, he's got popular preschool series and middle grades and young adult series. Uh, and, and, uh, I, I just think it's just, uh, 
cowardice that he and greed that, that you know and and you know agreement with you know i wouldn't want my children to to really get into the works of somebody who had sat by who was powerful in the church where these men were given shelter shelter for a, 10 years um yeah so that you know it's just um you know, he's not guilty by association, but he has not distanced himself at all from his father's actions. And as the son of the pastor of that church, he's not an, an not, not he's not a powerless figure in right. that community. Not at all. So yeah, yeah. All right. <sighs> so well, that's that. Um, thank you for thank you for pulling that together, and um, thank you. It's okay. The the quest continues. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, we'll, we'll see you online and see you in the next episode. Um, drop us a line on Twitter. Uh, we're C yeah. Rightcast on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, you can check us out on Substack. Uh, Rightcast. Substack at Rightcast. You do it. Thank you. I I, I blanked on my own URL yeah. for a moment there. Um, but yeah, it's a Twitter, Substack, yeah, and all of the all of your fine podcast establishments. We um, could and- really use your support if you want to throw us a few bucks uh, to help us keep making these episodes. And um, yeah, come talk to us on Twitter. We both check our individual Twitters more than we check. Our Christian Rightcast Twitter. So, <laughs> um, I'm at Kristen Rawls, Kristen with an I, and then Rawls R E W L S, and you're at Eaton, which is a lot easier to find. And um, but but also a lot spammier. So I that's uh, it's I oh I I well I mean I'll I'll be talking about Christian fundamentalism and like information architecture and random tabletop games. I'm I'm that guy. So anyways, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, in any case, um, thanks for joining us for, uh, for the episode and we will see you next time. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye.